The following is a presentation of Hawkeye's Mike LLC. Back from Wadley on first down. Wadley across midfield. Open sesame. 75 yards to the house. The explosiveness of Akron Wadley on display again. The longest play from scrimmage for Iowa this season. And just when Purdue lands a couple of punches, Iowa responding with a haymaker. Hello, everyone. This is John Patchett, and welcome to the football show from Hawkeye's Mike. This is our new Reporter's Notebook podcast featuring Scott Docterman, who looks back at the Hawks' Big Ten West road win at Purdue and previews this week's Wisconsin game in the annual battle for the Heartland Trophy. We also have a special guest this week, Randy Clarahan, a construction executive from Mortensen Construction, in a special feature previewing the renovations of the North Stands at Kinnick Stadium. And you'll hear from the head coaches in this coming Saturday's game, Iowa's Kirk Ferentz and Wisconsin's Paul Christ. This Hawkeyes Mike podcast is one in a series of our weekly programs, which includes sports reporter Scott Docterman of LandOf10.com and Steve Batterson from the Quad City Times, plus our own Tyler Chumeland and Jack Bransgard. Game highlights are courtesy of ESPN2 with announcers Anish Shroff and Tom Ramsey. We very much appreciate it and thank them. Hawkeye's mic programs are brought to you in part by Prefence Hand Sanitizer. One application lasts all day. Try the hand sanitizer used by the Iowa Hawkeyes. And remember, the best defense is Prefence. And by TNK Roofing and Sheet Metal, building strong and safe in the Midwest for over 50 years. The Iowa Hawkeyes host the Wisconsin Badgers in what is essentially a Big Ten West Division title elimination game Saturday at Kinnick Stadium. The Heartland Trophy, which currently resides in Iowa's Football Performance Center, will be at stake. The Iowa-Wisconsin rivalry has grown very intense over the past few years, especially since a former Hawkeyes assistant, Barry Alvarez, took over the Badgers program and restored it to not only respectability, but national prominence, much like what Hayden Fry did for the Hawkeyes. Many fans might say it's now Iowa's biggest rivalry, albeit not involving the most coveted trophy, which certainly remains Floyd of Rosedale, but the bowl isn't far behind the bronze pig. The Heartland Trophy has been at stake since 2004, and the series is tied at five apiece since then. Iowa now holds it following its thrilling 10-6 win last year in Madison. That victory broke a three-game Badgers win streak. This series began all the way back in 1894, and it's about as close as it can get. Wisconsin holds a 44-43-2 advantage going into Saturday's game. Iowa holds a 24-18-1 advantage in games played in Iowa City, despite the fact the Badgers have won the last three games played at Kinnick Stadium. From 1977 to 1996, the Hawkeyes defeated Wisconsin 17 times, tied at once. Since then, Whiskey is 10-7 against Iowa, and almost all of those games have been close. The last 
six contests have been decided by an average of 6.5 points. This year's game should be another slobber knocker, something fans of both teams have become accustomed to. Iowa is 5-2 and two overall, 3-1 and one in Big Ten play. The 10th-ranked Badgers are 4-2 and two overall and 1-2 and two in conference games. Wisconsin has played a much tougher schedule than Iowa, or for that matter, any other Big Ten team. It's defeated LSU as well as Akron, Georgia State, and Michigan State while losing at Michigan and to Ohio State last Saturday in Madison in overtime. Kirk Ferentz is in his 18th year as Iowa head coach with a record of 132-89. and He is 7th all-time in the Big Ten in coaching victories as well as in conference wins. Paul Christ has long been associated with the Wisconsin program. He quarterbacked for the Badgers from 1985-87. to He was an assistant coach there for eight seasons. He's in his second year as Wisconsin's head coach. His record is 14-5 and in that capacity. And prior to returning to Wisconsin, he was head coach at Pitt for three years. This game will kick off at 11 a.m. It will be a national telecast on ESPN with announcers Steve Levy, Brian Greasy, and Todd McShay. As usual, you can listen to the broadcast on the Hawkeyes radio network with Gary Dolphin, Ed Podolak, and Rob Brooks, and on satellite radio XM Channel 81 or Sirius Channel 81. Iowa has its bye week after Saturday's game. The Hawkeyes will next play on November 5th at Penn State. Wisconsin hosts Nebraska next Saturday in Madison. In tidbits and nuggets, Iowa has won six straight trophy games. It currently holds all of its rivalry game trophies. The Hawkeyes have successfully defended the Cy Hawk Trophy and Floyd of Rosedale so far this season. The Heartland Trophy will, of course, be up for grabs Saturday. And then the Heroes Trophy at the end of the regular season versus Nebraska. Wisconsin has won 11 of its last 12 trophy games against rivals Iowa, Minnesota, and Nebraska, dating back to the 2010 season. The Badgers' Big Ten record since 2004 is 68-31. and Only Ohio State has compiled a better record during that time. Wisconsin is also one of just 15 Power 5 programs to win 100 or more games since the start of the 2005 season, with a record of 112-40. and And Wisconsin has gone 11-3 and since losing to Iowa last year in Madison. Iowa's last home win over a nationally ranked opponent was 24-16 over number 13 Michigan in 2011. Its last victory in Kinnick Stadium over a top 10 team was against Michigan State in 2010. When the Hawkeyes won last year in Madison, Wisconsin was ranked 18th at that time. Saturday's contest is the 6th annual America Needs Farmers game. Former Iowa and NFL star tight end Dallas Clark is being honored as the 5th member of the ANF Wall of Honor. Previous recipients are Casey Wigman, Jared DeVries, Bruce Nelson, and Robert Gallery. I don't know how to put this, but I'm kind of a big deal. Into coverage, intercepted by Desmond King. King inside the 10, end zone, touchdown by the All-American. He had been waiting for a while, too. It had been 12 games between interceptions. He had eight last year. Finally, he gets a chance. Yeah, I, I, you know what? They kept going out at him. They kept going to his side. It's his third career interception return for a touchdown, which is an Iowa school record.
let's hear from the head coaches in this coming Saturday's game. First up, Iowa head coach Kirk Ferentz, who provides his overall assessment of this year's somewhat surprising Wisconsin team. Outstanding opponent, top 10 team, and certainly worthy of that. They're just a really good football team, no big surprise there. We've got a big challenge on our hands that way. And I said it a year ago, and I just add another year on. You look back the last six years, uh, the level they've played at in the conference, it's awfully impressive. And really, quite frankly, it's been that way since 1999. They've had a good program, a strong program, and uh, I've done an excellent job. And the common denominator seems to be that their players are good. They play extremely hard, and they're very, very well coached. And that's that's kind of been consistent for quite some time now. So the other thing about them, they're tough to play in Madison. They're tough to play in Kinnick, no matter where they go. They play well. And that's a sign of a good team. So bottom line is we're going to have to really improve. We're going to have to work hard and, and uh, go in the game knowing that anything that we do get that's good, we're going to have to earn. And that's, that's how it should be. Ferentz talks about the play of his star cornerback and returner Desmond King. I think really good. And uh, one thing I think it's noteworthy, again, I mention it every time we talk about him, if, if he's missed something since uh, January, uh, any kind of practice workout, I, I can't remember what it would be. So, you know, he's, he's a, a durable player. Most of the really great players, great players that have played here, that's one trait, you know, you have to be durable. I think it's a, a real key to, to, to greatness. He's playing well on defense, really doing a good job, and then he's doing an extraordinary job on special teams. And, you know, it was great for him to get his hands on the ball the other day, and that return that he made fit right in with the uh, returns that he's been doing in the special teams phase as well. So awfully impressive. I think the defense, they did a nice job uh, and they've done that traditionally converting it into an offensive play, but his effort I think was extraordinary on that play. So he's just doing a good job. He's playing really well. Ferentz was asked if it's obvious the Badgers should have retained their top 10 ranking despite two losses and about the recent history of the Wisconsin program from Barry Alvarez on. Makes sense to me and the polls don't always make sense. I don't follow them very closely, but uh, they don't always make sense. But what makes sense to me is when you look at film and then you look at a team's ranking and if they match, then you can say, yeah, that makes sense. And uh, th- that's not always the case. But, you know, these guys are playing really good football. A lot was said about their schedule, you know, preceding the season. You know, they've, they've just taken each game one step at a time. It always hasn't been as pretty as they probably wanted. But, you know, they've got a good record. And they've got, more importantly, they've got a good football team that really plays well. And, again, it doesn't seem to matter if they're on the road or at home. They play play good football. Back in the 90s when I wasn't in college football, but watching their, their tape, scouted players from their, their uh, team. So you watch tape of people, and uh, some things flip your switch, some don't. And uh, they've always kind of, when I've watched them, and I'll go back to the 80s, they've had good players, and they've played well, and they're typically pretty well coached. And you know, had that little dip there for a while, but uh, when Barry got there, he's he's just pushed that thing to the top. And I think an interesting part, you know, they've had several coaches since Barry retired, yet the, the product still looks pretty darn good. You know, a little different in personality, but for the most part, they really play good defense. They play good offense, good special teams, and that's what this team looks like right now. They're strong in all three areas. Fair was asked if this game will likely be an old-fashioned Iowa-Wisconsin Big Ten slobber knocker, a tough defensive battle requiring both teams to stay the course and try to make something happen. That's what this game will be all about, in my opinion, you know, unless something just, you know, the ceiling comes in. But, uh, you know, we've been, in, historically, been in a lot of games like this where it's just, you just never know what that play is going to be, what's going to happen. Outsiders might describe it as ugly football, but it's it's kind of like the visual I got right now is like last couple of years when Pittsburgh and Baltimore played. You know, it's usually a pretty tough physical game and uh, comes down to a possession. So, you, you know, you just never know. In big games, you never know what it is it's going to do. What, what's the play? And it might be on special teams, offense, defense. It might be something really subtle. You know, I think back to Mitch King uh, drawing a holding penalty out there in, a, in the Penn State game in 08. Made it third and forever for them. They threw a ball, got tipped. You know, just one thing led to another. So you just never know what that play is going to be. So, yeah, you just you play somebody that's really good. These guys are really good. Not every play is just going to be like uh, going on the scout team. It just doesn't work that 
that way. And players need to understand that. And just you just keep pushing. You just keep banging away and see if something good will happen. Last year's game was really a, pretty much that was the story of that game. Next, we hear from Wisconsin head coach Paul Christ, who was asked if Iowa's talent level and play is as good as it was last year, despite the Hawkeyes' struggles. Absolutely. They're very talented. They're well-coached. It's a, it's a good football team, uh, and you see that on tape. And, uh, you know, we've got to have a great week of preparation, and we've got to play well. And um, I mean, they've got, it starts, you know, on offense. They, they've got an experienced, really good quarterback, and, and uh, they've got got players around them and and defensively they're playing well it's a it's a really good team and uh like i said i've always had a ton of respect for the way they're coached we're looking forward to playing them but it's you know we've got to we've got to have a good week and we've got to play well chris was asked how he approaches team preparation for a rivalry trophy game like this saturday's you know i think that the beautiful thing about this team and the, and when you play this season that this is the, our team this year and we all those of us who were part of it last year, we understand what happened. And yet none of that carries over, carries forward. We got a ton of respect for Iowa and, and I do certainly for their program and but it's it's about this Saturday, who's the best team. Paul Christ was asked what his team has shown him through its first six games. I think it's a group that likes playing, like I believe that, and I think it's a group that cares tremendously about each other and, and I think it's a group that you can challenge them and and they they have a confident you know and we have an inside confidence but there's definitely no arrogance to that group and I think it's a group that for us to be the best we have to keep improving each week you know I think that's what that's the halftime report you know what I mean I think it's but it's a group that every day I look forward to seeing them and knowing that they're going to come and practice and and they're going to have fun doing it with each other and yet there's a purpose to it and they do like playing the game and they like playing it with each other. And Chris talks about the problems Iowa's offense presents this season, especially with the play of running backs LaShawn Daniels and Akram Wadley. You know, as you start watching it, and that's kind of the, especially those teams that you have had an identity for a number of years, you know, initially it's, oh, here we go again. You know what I mean? It's, you kind of plug them into the, the and then the more you watch them, you see differences. And, and I think that you know they they're, they're trying to figure out what was those the combination and it, and it does seem like they're going but I think they're different backs now I don't think that to the point where this is this style of offense with this or you know that they're they can still run their whole offense looks like at this point in the week as you're studying them but the more you watch them you see differences and 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 yet I think that you know I don't know if we're to the point where you're going to change your plan because of one or the other Beathard takes a shot downfield he's got McCarron touchdown Guys, I'm standing down here in the near end zone right where that ball was caught by McCarrick. A beautiful throw by C.J. Beathard. He missed one earlier. Didn't miss that time. Great touch. Hit him in stride. And it was easy easy striding to get in from McCarron there. The PAT is good. And it is 21-0 Iowa. (laughs) 
This week, the Iowa Board of Regents gave its final approval to the renovations of the North End Zone in Kinnick Stadium. Construction of the $90 million project will span three years and begin as soon as the 2016 season comes to a close. The entire North End Zone will be demolished and replaced with a three-tiered structure that will essentially turn Kinnick into a bowl. It will include general seating as well as club seating and suites and also have substantially improved amenities and an improved fan experience. When this project is completed in time for the 2019 season, there will be about 10,234 seats in that section, which will slightly drop Kinnick's overall capacity to 69,000. Financing of the project will be provided by a combination of athletic department fundraising, department revenue, and bonding. Kinnick Stadium's north end zone was last updated in 1986. We are fortunate to have Randy Clarahan as our special guest in this segment. He is a construction executive with Mortensen Construction, which has been involved in the construction of the new Hancher Auditorium, the Voxman Music Building, and previous major renovations at Kinnick, including the Press Box, South End Zone, and new locker rooms. But let's begin by hearing from Iowa Athletics Director Gary Barda, who talks about the overall project. Already, Kinnick Stadium is one of the great college football stadiums in the country. And, and a big reason for that is because of our fan base. I mean, the structure is, is awesome, but our fans have historically just, they're the best. And so as we did this project, one of our key principles was to enhance the fan experience. And I'm excited uh, that as people see this, they're going to see that that absolutely has been accomplished. Everything we do in athletics facility-wise uh, and otherwise is self-funded. So we sit down with a project like this and we put together a long-term financial plan. It includes fundraising, so we're going to be out raising uh, $25 million or more. Uh, we have a, a funding amount for the seats. We're going to have club seats and some, some other premium seating options. So the, the revenue from that will help fund the bonds. And then that's the final piece of the puzzle. We'll sell some bonds and uh, athletic department revenue will make up the difference between uh, the fundraising, the, the club seats, and, uh, and then the bond payment on an annual basis. One of the goals in this project is to offer something for everyone. So we'll have bleacher seats, we'll have chair backs, we'll have premium seating in the form of a club, some small box type premium opportunities, some deck areas. So we'll have a little bit uh, of something for, for people at all levels and of, of all interests. It, it will go under 70,000. We spent a lot of time seeing if there was any way we could be above 70. Uh, we, had, we had a couple of thoughts in mind. One, number one was to make sure the fan experience was the best it could possibly be. That's how we came up with the structure that we ended up with. It will be slightly b below 70,000, not very much. And, and if we continue at the pace we've been on, we'll still always be able to maintain that top 25 attendance. In the future, if we if we decided we wanted to add, we have some ideas of where we could get it back over 70, but that won't be the case initially. Next, Mortensen's Randy Clarahan and I go in-depth looking at the major Kinnick renovations that will take place over the next three years. Randy, we talked last year about the proposal for the Kinnick Stadium North area, North End Zone, and the redevelopment of it, the first redesign and rebuild in, in quite a few years there. Since that time, a lot 
has changed. And there's a concrete proposal now that went before the Board of Regents this week, and it's uh, a lot more costly. It's a lot longer in uh, the length of time in terms to complete, and there's some exciting new features about it. So let's start with one of the first questions that Athletic Director Gary Barta dealt with last year was the seating capacity of the stadium. He did not want it to change. He did not want it to drop below 70,000. But in the final proposal that went before the Regents, it does drop slightly below 70,000 and appeared to be a balance between the amenities and the features that everyone wanted built into it versus the ability to maintain that 70,000 magic number capacity. Yeah. So, you know, we worked with the athletic department for about a year and Gary challenged the entire team design as well as Mortensen to uh, maintain that 70,000. That was a value that he held dear. But as we made it through the design, it became clear that the what was really the most important was the fan experience. And with the addition of restrooms, with the better circulation, with the concourse levels that are going to be incorporated, the 70,000 mark uh, wasn't going to be able to be attained. If we would have tried to hit the 70,000, frankly, the fan experience would not have been what uh, the design reflects today. Now, the original cost proposal was in the neighborhood of, I think, the mid 40s, 40 million, 42 million. The final one, the project proposal was closer to a $90 million plus cost. What happened? That's a great question. And uh, I can tell you that the initial number that was shared uh, publicly was frankly well underestimated because uh, they used numbers that didn't reflect the the design and the intent for the uh, ultimate end zone design. So the uh, project cost, as many people may not realize, includes not only the construction costs, but the design costs and other costs. At the same time, there are costs associated with this particular project that need to be incorporated in the overall design design because it makes sense to do them now. So for instance, a new field that's going to be contemplated and incorporated into next summer's projects, and we'll get into that maybe a little bit, along with some storm sewer work, which really has nothing to do with the north end zone, but because that work is going to be happening, those kind of projects are going to be incorporated. So a combination of right-sizing the budget and taking advantage of the construction that's going to be taking place reflected the new budget. Is it accurate to say that from the beginning and as this has evolved, that the number one focus was on fan experience and amenities, improving the overall experience in Kinnick Stadium? Absolutely. You know, those that have lived in the North End Zone knows that the restrooms, the concessions, the circulation isn't really up to Big Ten standards. And and uh, that was first and foremost uh, of what the athletic department wanted to achieve. And I think we've achieved that in this design and fell short of the 70000 uh, mark, but it's an extraordinary design the way it, it finishes the bowl effect. I mean, it gives a big time stadium feel to uh, that whole piece of Kinnick Stadium and the way it ties into the Skywalk system and the club level. It's going to be a, a, a project that everybody should be proud of. Many of the listeners have probably seen the renderings online. They really look fantastic. Kirk, who's featured in this segment, has mentioned how spectacular he thinks they are, but it's very complicated because you have short time frames within which to accomplish major construction activities and you have to have a stadium that can be played in for the next couple of seasons after 2016. Now the original idea was that they were going to start construction, tear down the day after the season ended and have steel pre-ordered. I remember when we talked mm-hmm. last year and be 
ready to go and have it all ready and up and running by the following uh, opening day kickoff. But now it's going to be spread not just over two years, but really over three years to be completely finished. Talk about what fans can expect to see in 2017, in 2018, and in 2019. Sure. So it does, in fact, uh, cross over three seasons. The, uh, the the fan experience for the 2017 season, they really won't notice uh, some of the what I call the enabling projects. And, and certainly they'll notice that there's a new turf, and that's part of the project. But as I mentioned earlier, there's a, a storm line that needs to be done, which creates the need to big, dig a big hole in the end zone, in the north end zone, and bore a large 24-inch line underneath the north end zone to fix an ongoing problem that's really outside the stadium, but it affects the storm drainage. So at the end of the 27th season, the plan would be to go in and tear down the entire north end zone, rebuild it, and uh, have all of the general admission seating in place. So as you look at it, it would have that bowl effect. You're, you're going to capture 85% of the seating. And what's important to the athletic department certainly is date certain so that when they go to sell season tickets, they know absolutely those seats are going to be available. So the focus is going to be getting those seats in. The uh, issues that are going to move on to the 2018, post-2018 season is the club level amenities and as well as some of the restrooms and, and concessions. So there'll be some permanent restrooms, some temporary restrooms potentially during the 18 season. But the experience of having the bowl, the experience for the general admission, the, the concourse levels will be in place. But it's important to be realistic about the schedule, be realistic about what seats can be sold. And it's a little teaser during the 18 season so that people can get a feel for those club level seats. And at the end of the, for the 19 season, it'll be complete, club level will be in, and uh, it'll be a great project. Okay, let's go back and talk a little bit more about each year. So 2017, opening kickoff. The only thing the fans are really going to notice is there's new turf in place. That's going to be the new field turf like uh, they put in for the, practice facility. Then the moment the final game is played in 2017 in Kinnick, then some of the big heavy duty construction begins and 2017 will have the same capacity we have today, the 70,000 and some change. 2018, when you'll have pretty much everything done but the actual finished product in the club area, you won't have quite the in-capacity seating that you'll have for the 2019 season. Correct. correct? You'll, you'll be short about 1,500 seats. Okay. So so in 2018, when fans come in, they'll have, they will have the bowl effect for the first time. And it will also be the first time in Kinnick's history that there'll be two-tiered seating because you'll have, based on the renderings I've seen, general admission, bench seating at the same level they have today. And then you're going to have a second tier of general admission seating on top of the club area. Am I correct there? That's right. So the best, best way to explain it is you've got upper level uh, seating, lower level seating, sandwiched in between that is going to be the club level and each of those two levels have its own concourse so circulation is going to be improved you will have that two-tier look those seats will be in it'll be finished a scoreboard will be installed so the fan experience for the 2018 season for almost everyone is going to be extraordinary they're going to see a bold in effect they're going to see the video board they're going to see you know just shy of the you know somewhere around 8500 seats in a end zone that's been carrying a 
about 10,000 and change. So most people will look at that and be super excited. And it's a teaser for those that want to grab those club level seating that's going to be featured in the 2019 season. And the new North End Zone scoreboard is actually going to be larger than the scoreboard that's in the South End Zone? That's the plan. Yep. So there's, there's uh, I don't think everything's been sorted out, but the ribbon board and some of that was which was just installed or the year before is going to be taken down, stored, and re- and put back in. So it, it's it's uh, brand new technology, but the new scoreboard that it would be uh, in place would be uh, brand new and larger than what's in the south side. And when all is said and done, the start of the 2019 season, how much of, of the street will actually still exist as a street north that's immediately north of the stadium? I think it's Forest Evashevsky Drive. It's, it is Evashevsky Drive. And uh, what's neat about, and it doesn't really show up in the renderings, renderings very well, but this actually cantilevers over a little bit of Evashevsky Drive. So the drive during the construction period is going to be choked off at times to facilitate construction. But at the end of the project in the 2019 season, that will still remain a two-lane access road because you've got the transportation center, you got certainly the adjacency to the hospital, and those are critical. So that's, again, that's a great point, John, of, of how complicated this project is because there's just no room. And when we went and analyzed the site logistics and the issues that you need to have in place for life safety and circulation, we felt that it was too much to ask of anyone to try to cram all of that in one year. And, and frankly, you're not building it in the most ideal conditions. You're starting, you know, end of November and you're trying to turn it over in, in basically July. Mortensen has been involved in this since the initial discussions, helping the university in planning and getting the proposal to the point where it was presented to the Board of Regents and approved. And Mortensen, I know, brings terrific amount of experience in terms of stadium construction around the country. What are some of the other projects that, that Mortensen Construction has been involved in in terms of sports facilities? Yeah, you know, so that's a great question. And, and uh, on this scale, we recently did a, a major renovation at, at uh, Kansas State University's uh, end zone. So it was a very similar project in terms of size and scale and timing. So we understand collegiate sports very well. Other projects that we've we've done is, as you know, we uh, did the initial renovations in 0405 for the press box in the south end zone and the locker rooms facilities. More notably, recently, those that are potential Vikings fan, Mortensen was the general contractor for the U.S. Bank Stadium up in Minneapolis, slightly larger, close to a billion dollar project. Uh, phenomenal for a little trivia, the old Metrodome that people used to go into would fit neatly inside U.S. Bank Stadium. So, you know, we, we know sports, we know football, we know collegiate sports. The uh, uh, Minnesota Gophers football stadium, TCF Bank Stadium, we, we built that as well. We're known for not only football, but baseball. It's exciting times because we're finishing up the Atlanta Braves baseball stadium in Atlanta, as well as we'll be launching the new Golden State Warriors basketball arena sometime next year. Now, there's no guarantee, Morton, will be the general contractor on this. I assume, without asking you to give away any you know, planning or strategy, that Mortensen is likely going to bid on, on that possibility. We, we will. We will, uh, we will pursue the project. There's, uh, uh, within the Board of Regents, discussion about an alternate delivery method to bring the best people to the project. And uh, we're excited about that opportunity. Uh, we are committed to the University of Iowa. We feel passionate about Kinnick Stadium. We know it very well. We've brought the project to this point. And we are excited about the opportunity of helping them actually see this dream to reality. Now, for people in the Iowa City area and who come in and also visit here, they've watched what Mortensen has been in 
charge of the last couple of years with the new Hancher Auditorium, the new music building. And I'm assuming that since you have a division that works on sports complexes, will not the same kind of people necessarily that were involved in Hancher and, and Voxman will be involved in the stadium construction should you move forward in that area? We have depth of resources. So what we would do for any project is we're going to tap our group, our sports group, for some expertise in planning and staging and phasing, uh, as well as some project management and supervision. But you know, ironically, the uh, assistant superintendent that worked on Kinnick Stadium back in 0405 lives right here in the area and is super excited about the opportunity to, to work on it. We have another superintendent that was with another firm back in 0405 that was integral to Kinnick. So we're going to have a good mix of both local people that work here for Mortensen as well as bringing the experts. And, and I think the goal for the entire project certainly is going to be making sure that we, whoever gets it, engages the local community and making sure that we utilize local resources. We've got great partners here and you can't replace the fact that people that are passionate about Hawkeye football are going to be those that are going to make sure this project doesn't fail. And that's what you need is those kind of resources. And let's close out. We sure appreciate your time. With that passion question, Kinnick Stadium is iconic, not just for the University of Iowa, but really it's one of the iconic stadiums mm -hmm. across the nation. Is. This is a significant change. It's a different kind of change than the press box in the south end zone. When fans see the finished product, when they walk in there for the opening game in 2019, is it going to be a wow? Are they going to say, oh my goodness, they pulled this off. It's even better than it's ever been before, and it didn't change the iconic nature of Kinnick. No, I, I think that what they're going to find is a stadium that increases fan experience, that enhances fan experience, but it's going to be of that same vintage. It's going to fit in well to what Kinnick is and, and what it represents. And those that have seen the renderings will understand that it's going to be a kind of a seamless but enhanced opportunity to create a mezzanine level, concourse level, club experience. But if you're sitting inside stadium and looking out toward the north end zone, it's going to have that big time Big Ten feel that, that the fans deserve. And finally in this segment, Iowa head coach Kirk Ferentz provides his view on the need for the Kinnick Stadium upgrades and what it means to the Iowa football program. You know, during the summer, I do think about stuff. And uh, you take some time to think about just how different. When I got here in 81, okay, we were in the field house. You know, we were all, I think uh, Coach Elliott had like a little suite built. You know, it was about the size of this room right here. Offices around the outside, a little room in the middle, you know, for people to sit and stuff. So you think about that there, here, you know, just everything that's happened and then the last 18 years, what I've been able to witness 17 and a half years. When you start to really start thinking about it, which I did during the summertime, it's pretty neat. And to me, this is the next step. Uh, I've seen some drawings and they just look spectacular. And we've already got an unbelievable stadium. It was pretty good even before that press box went up. Now it's more spectacular. So it's just kind of the next step of, to me, the program, you know, continuing to push forward. And uh, it's like anything in life, you know, if, if you, at least anything, it's competitive. You know, if you're not pushing forward, uh, you're probably not doing the right thing. And I think it's, uh, it's the next step. There's going to be a lot of work that's going to have to go into that, certainly. I'm anxious to help in any way I can once we get down to the season. But right now, you know, we're focused on the year. But I think it's just, if, if we want to if we want to be a first-class program, we need to keep pushing forward. And we certainly, uh, you know, hit the jackpot with this building. I mean, we just, we did it, did it right. And did it right for a long time. And I think it was demonstrated responsibility of the program, the long-term health of the program. You can view a video and artists' renderings of the changes on our Hawkeyes Mike Twitter feed and also at the website kinnickedge.org. Great story. Compelling and rich. 
On second and one, Daniels to the outside. Angles in for another score. And it is 27-0, Iowa. And who needs a first down when you can get a touchdown? Sean Daniels again running behind the dominant blocking of that Hawkeye offense. That's good football right there by the Hawkeyes. Second rushing touchdown of the game for Daniels. The PAT is good. And it's 28-0. The route is on. How many things have you touched today? Hmm? Ooh, a puppy. <laughs> How many places have your hands been? Ooh, a keyboard. 24-hour hand sanitizer protection just makes sense. Prefins, a silica-based hand sanitizer protects your hands all day. Stays on up to 10 washings, moisturizes, alcohol-free, and safe for the kids. So go ahead, touch anything and everything. Ooh, a toilet. Prefins, keep your hands germ-free all day. <laughs> Time now for our Reporter's Notebook show this week with Scott Docterman. You can read Scott's articles online at landof10.com. You can also follow Scott on Twitter at Scott Docterman. Scott looks back at the Purdue game, previews this Saturday's Wisconsin game, and talks Big Ten. Scott, before we head into the Wisconsin-Iowa deep dive look ahead, let's take one last look back at last Saturday's game, which ended up costing Purdue head coach Darrell Hazel his job, but it was a complete domination by Iowa. It looked like it was pretty much and, frankly, effectively was over after the first quarter, certainly after the first half, and yet you couldn't pass in the hymn books to the last couple of minutes of the game. <laughs> yeah, for uh, three and a half quarters, uh, it was a complete and utter domination by Iowa. I mean, it was 40 40- to 14 all the way until the 840 mark of the fourth quarter Iowa substituted put in its uh, reserves and and Purdue didn't and uh, Purdue's had, always had kind of a quick strike offense they they can make some things happen and and that's kind of what happened there you know they were able to score quite a bit in the fourth quarter I kind of equate it in some ways as when in basketball you have like a 20 point lead and five minutes to go and you pull your starters and the other team all of a sudden cuts it to eight you know so it's kind of in that uh territory but not really you're not really threatened but i think uh, i'm kind of choosing more or less to look at what happened the three and a half quarters and that was a pretty dominant performance by iowa on both sides of the ball purdue i think racked up more than 50 percent of its offensive stats in the last 15 minutes and a few odd seconds of that game so kind of left the stats a little bit skewed in a negative manner for iowa's defense but in terms of the offense they really got untracked and that was important to see going into this Saturday's game. It's a top 10 ranked team in Wisconsin, a dominant defense again and has been for several years. And uh, this one's for the Heartland Trophy. So looking at the offense, Iowa offense, Wisconsin defensive matchup, Iowa still in terms of its FBS ranking struggling in total offense. They are 102nd this week, but they jumped to 58 in scoring offense, nearly 31 points a game. And inside the red zone, Iowa's offense has been just about as good as you can get yeah that's kind of the keys i mean this team's never going to break the bank on points it's never going to break the bank on yards it's just not that style of play i mean they play ground control you know clock control get in the red zone score points so i i don't i don't you know it's such a wide variance in college football as to you know who you know know, baylor may score 58 points a game but you know if they give up 65 it's still a loss Uh, i like uh the way
way Iowa ran the ball last week to me was the most uh, positive development, I would say, for the Hawkeyes. I mean, 365 yards against the Boilermakers, two running backs each rushing for more than 150 yards. You know, it was, um, you know, almost seven yards per carry, and they ran the ball 53 times. I mean, that's that's ex- perfect football. So, you know, I, I like the way that that part of the game is developed, even with a starter out, out for the game up front, that they seem to run the ball effectively just about every time they wanted to, even in the fourth quarter. That's where it kind of slowed down when they put their second team unit in there. But, uh, you know, so I like the progression that they're making on that side of the ball. I still think the offense has a long way to go. This week's going to be a real test for them, especially in the passing game is probably what I should have said is the pass offense to me is still a concern. I'm not sure they've got the receivers that can get open on a consistent basis. Whereas, uh, you know, Wisconsin has a team that's uh, capable of, of uh, shutting down just about anybody. So that's uh, that's going to be a fear going forward. Iowa's red zone offense is first in the Big Ten, tied for fifth nationally. In terms of Wadley and Daniels, the running back duo, Iowa now has two of the top five Big Ten rushers in terms of rushing yards overall. Wadley sitting at third, Daniels at fifth. That is pretty impressive. Beathard's completing 60% of his passes, 11 touchdowns against four interceptions. And uh, since Vandenberg's injury, Riley McCarron has stepped up. But to your point, other than George Kittle, nobody else really has. Yeah, and what, they had five catches by uh, uh, wide receivers last week. Now, granted, you take that with a grain of salt because they they didn't have a, uh, you know, they, they didn't need to. <laughs> they ran the ball. But, uh, you know, yeah, C.J. Beathard is, is putting together a nice year. I don't think it was the kind of year that everybody expected him to have, you know, some sort of incredible breakout year. You know, last year was so strong, 17 touchdowns, five interceptions. This year, you know, he's he's kind of laboring along, and, and that's kind of what happens when, you know, he, he did lose five out of his six top receivers, and then George Kittle's status is completely undetermined for Saturday, and that could be six out of six. So, you know, I'm not I'm not sure what's uh, the next step here, but, you know, they've got a couple of guys that have to take strides. I mean, Jay Shield had a really nice block on an Akram Wadley touchdown run last week, but he didn't have a catch. You know, Germany Smith had one catch for five yards. Those guys have to get involved in the passing game. They have to be catching the ball. They have to separate from defenders. They have to do the things that wide receivers do to win in this league, and we have not seen that yet. And unless the unless something happens here in the next couple of weeks, that's going to be the kind of Achilles heel for this offense and this team. You and I have talked the last couple of times we visited about the fact that it's really important for at least one more, if not two more, of Iowa's tight ends to step up. You finally saw another one catch a touchdown. That was Noah Fant last week versus Purdue. That also was going to be a key part of this passing offense attempts, at least, versus Wisconsin, which, as I think you and others have pointed out, is probably going to run blitz Iowa and try to force Iowa to go downfield. That's the way I would beat Iowa right now is is to, you know, they're a 3-4 defense. A lot of times they only have two down linemen and then they'll have two outside backers standing up on the line of scrimmage. So, you know, they they have such strange different looks. And you know, I didn't think it was something that was going to work, frankly, when Dave Aranda brought that to the Big Ten, you know, a few years ago. And then now it's been extended with Wilcox. I just didn't think it was something that they could withstand. But they've actually gotten better. I mean, they were really good in the past, but their defense may be better today than it was, you know, even five, six years ago. So, you know, yeah, I expect them fully to run blitz at Iowa to, to really attack, you know, the, the lanes to try to stop and stunt the, the ball carrier before they gets going. You know, how do you do that? I don't know. There's some, there are some ways. I mean, you know, number one, I mean, I think Iowa does run a little more power in its running game, you know, m- pulling guards and moving into spots. So, if, and, and if you can, 
can uh, somehow have so, some sort of a you know a, a run that kind of goes the opposite way, some sort of misdirection. I think that could stunt that a little bit. But you know, ultimately, it's going to come down to a couple of receivers making some big plays. They're going to be there to be made. Can they make them? That's going to be one of the big keys to this game. I was given up 18 sacks already. That's the second most in the Big Ten. Wisconsin has 17 sacks, which is the third best in the Big Ten. In addition to the Kittle injury issue on the offensive line, you have Myers and Croston that are both questionable. It looks like Ference's offensive line changes are, are going to be permanent. I put that word in quotes going forward, subject to the injuries. And somewhat surprisingly, Pro Football Focus listed Iowa's offensive line overall as a group as the best in the FBS this week. Yeah, I saw that. I don't know what they were talking about. I'll be honest with you. I mean, there's sometimes where the analytics and the metrics get so skewed that you you uh, you just close your eyes and they say, uh, pick this one, you know, the, all the numbers. I mean, you know, I don't know. Maybe it's just my subjective eye or something. I'm watching this unit and I think, okay, they've made some strides, especially blocking the, in the run game. But giving up that many sacks, I mean, last year they gave up 30. They're on pace to give up more sacks than any other year since 2007. I just don't see them being number one. And, you know, I wouldn't see them being number one in the Big Ten, let alone all country so you know i think you know it's going to be crucial though this week if somehow boone myers or or cole croston or both and and george kittle can all get out out there and play i mean kirk ferentz seemed to be a little pessimistic about it kind of talked out of both sides of his mouth and it was kind of strange about kittle at first he said uh, it was unrealistic that he was going to be able to play then he backed off that and then he said it might be a long shot my guess is that george will try to play you know whether he plays or not I, i don't know now, as far as the other two goes, I don't know the depth extent of their injuries. They're tough guys. They got a bye week the next week. I think they're going to give it a shot. You know, what, again, whether they make it or not, it uh, it's it's their pain, not mine. So I, I can't be the one to judge it for them. Back to Wisconsin's defense. They've been dominant now for several years, and this year is no different. Maybe even a little bit surprising. They've only given up an average of 16.8 points per game since 2013. That's second nationally, second only to Alabama. While they have a lot of playmakers on defense, uh, linebacker positions, and in the defensive backfield, and they've got a terrific defensive end. They really play a team defense. It's not one or two stars that they rely on. Yeah, and, and I mean, the, the tone is really set a lot a lot of ways by their linebacking core. I mean, Jack Sitchie was this week's uh, Big Ten Defensive Player of the Week. Had, what, three and a half tackles for loss? I mean, just an amazing performance from him. You know, T.J. Watt is, is developed into, uh, you know, kind of a different guy to com- compete against you know he's not as big certainly as his oldest brother JJ but you know still kind of a tough guy to beat against TJ Edwards is good and then this week uh, they might get Vince Beagle back who I think is the best of their defenders uh, he suffered a broken foot it's been out for the better part of a month you know missed the last couple of games I mean you know what kind of impact could he have had against an Ohio State or against a Michigan you know you never know I mean you know it's it's kind of far-fetched to say that he would have won the game for him but I you, you know I uh, he could have made a play or two that might have led him to that direction. So, you know, and, and on top of that, you know, they've got some veterans in the back part. You know, Sojourn Shelton feels like he's played for 18 years, you know, since Barry Alvarez was the head coach. And, but no, he's uh, he's a corner, a four-year starter. And and, uh, and up front, you know, they rotate a lot of guys. Uh, you know, they've, they've got some experience. So, you know, this is a unit that, you know, really dictates the tempo of games. And, and you know, their statistics in some ways are, are only going to get better. I mean, the competition they've played thus far LSU Ohio State Michigan Michigan State at this point doesn't really count for much but but to play those teams 
teams that have that those kind of stats when they're when they start to play most of the western division teams they're only going to go up from here tj watt is second in the big 10 in sacks he has five and a half he leads wisconsin in tackles for loss with eight their other cornerback Derek tyndall is 10th nationally with interceptions he has three and passes defended he has 10 beagle has played really well against iowa but they also have three other players that are listed as questionable i thought it was interesting that wisconsin actually puts out an injury list that looks a little bit like what you'd see in the nfl they have people as questionable and and uh, people is definitely out so if they get beagle back it's gonna be a real challenge for iowa to try to run the ball which they have to do to have a chance to win this game it's gonna be a challenge but it's one that iowa has to accept and and try to compete against and beagle has been terrific last year he and joe schobert just shut the door on iowa so many different times especially in the second half but you know this is kind of where you know at at some point you got to say you know what this team is is great in all these areas but you're going to have to attack them and keep them honest and you know two years ago wisconsin came into kinnick with similar accolades in fact they were number one in the country in defense and iowa took it to them scored 24 points and really if they didn't get a stop on wisconsin wouldn't have converted a couple of third downs in the fourth quarter i think iowa would have won that game and and i don't know that they're better now than they were then they had some really good players so but that said you know this is going to be a challenge for iowa it's the best team they've played it's best defense they'll probably play all year so they're going to have to attack them and they're going to have to keep the ball you know and keep away from the defense so i i think this is a you know an important juncture in this season that iowa needs to have going forward in spite of its struggles rushing or its inconsistency i guess is a better way to put it for iowa there are up to 180 yards rushing yards per game now they've scored 17 touchdowns on the ground the matchup though with wisconsin they only give up 106 and they've only given up four rushing touchdowns but if you look at the red zone offense of iowa converting 96 percent of the time 23 of 24 19 of those have been touchdowns wisconsin's defense has only allowed opponents into the red zone 16 times they've scored on 11 of those seven touchdowns i think if fans focus on what happens in the red zone for both teams saturday that could be one of the keys to the game obviously well yeah i mean it's going to be wet and really even you know once they get in there do they score touchdowns or field goals that's the difference between winning and losing i mean if they get in there and kick two field goals that's 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 going to be you know a huge part of it you know and and iowa should be perfect frankly i mean they were they tried i want to say was it Rutgers? it was like some sort of fourth and eight you know or something from the 10 or 12 yard line and and didn't uh and didn't even uh, you know kick a field goal and i mean it made more sense to try a field goal so i mean they've really um you know done some you know good things when they've gotten down in there and you know and, and wisconsin's been really tough i mean limiting opportunities certainly touchdowns you know better than just about everybody except for michigan who's better than most nfl teams so <laughs> i'm just slightly joking but but you know so yeah i mean whether or not iowa scores in the red zone kicks field goals last year you know they tried a fourth and eight from or fourth and goal from the eight and they they threw it into the end zone and and at, at that point i'm going no take your points you're down there and they didn't and i i know they've been messing around with their field goal kicker but i would say right now they need to they need to score every time they get in there it doesn't matter if it's three or seven but try to get seven of course after this break scott and i take a deep dive into the matchup between iowa's defense and wisconsin's offense special teams and the big 10 
Are you or your local Iowa company looking for a new roof or sheet metal work? TNK Roofing and Sheet Metal specializes in low slope commercial and industrial roofing and sheet metal. Building strong and safe in the Midwest for over 50 years, TNK Roofing and Sheet Metal, located in Ely, Iowa, just south of Cedar Rapids, provides strong, expert customer service and the best quality fit for you, their customer. For a free estimate, give TNK a call at 319-848-4191 or toll free at 1-800-383-7663. You can also visit their brand new website at tkroofing.com. TNK Roofing and Sheet Metal, your home for all your low slope roofing systems. Give them a call today. Again, 319 848 4191 or toll free at 1 800 383 7663. Flipping over now, looking at Iowa's defense versus Wisconsin's offense. The Iowa defense continues to rank pretty well in terms of total defense. They're 46th nationally, scoring 21st. They're only giving up 19.1 points per game. Red zone, they're 19th in the nation. But third down conversions the last couple of weeks, they've only surrendered 9 of 30. Now that was Minnesota and Purdue, but Minnesota's pretty decent in that respect coming into that game. And rushing yards the last two games combined to Minnesota and Purdue. And again, Minnesota, very good. They've only given up 149 yards on the ground. So you're looking at a Wisconsin team that managed, even though it was overtime, managed to put up 450 yards of total offense versus Ohio State. That was an eye-opener. They've got a, they've got an, uh, a, an offense that's capable of doing some things in multiple ways. I mean, Corey Clement is a terrific running back. He didn't play in last year's game. He was hurt. I, if I remember right, he went to Germany and had some sort of a sports hernia surgery to try to get back early and you know he's a difference maker he is an NFL caliber running back and that's going to be a challenge for Iowa to defend and then uh, you know I like the way they they do different things I mean they they orchestrated a lot of jet sweeps and uh, hitting the edge and that's an area of to me of great concern for Iowa they got burned a little bit by North Dakota State not much but a little bit from that but uh, you know the perimeter has been a challenge for them it was certainly a few years ago so I think this is one area where they you know Wisconsin you know with a new quarterback he's okay. I don't think he's great yet. Maybe he will be, but I think he's he's a young guy coming into a hostile environment. I think there's some challenges there awaiting him. You know, Iowa, as you mentioned, their, their run defense was really stout the other day, um, was against Minnesota. I think that was my biggest concern for them a couple weeks ago, because after five games, they just couldn't stop the run at all. And if that was the case, if that going forward, I thought that they really, you know, that, that was, they're going to play themselves out of maybe even a bowl game but but now I, I think they've, they've got a lot of confidence and I think they're going to be you know they're a much better team going forward. Corey Clement was injured much of last year and didn't play against Iowa in that uh, game up in Madison. He was injured earlier this season but against Ohio State he carried the ball 25 times for 164 yards. Richard freshman quarterback Alex Hornibrook is left-handed which uh, you don't see a whole lot of. He's been the starter in three games or three Big Ten teams. He took over for senior Bart Houston versus uh, Michigan and Ohio State State. He completed 25 out of 53 passes, but he threw four interceptions in those two games. Now, granted, those are good defenses, but to your point, coming in here, Kinnick will be very hostile Saturday, and Iowa's defense has a chance to try to rattle him. They do. Whether or not they get a pass rush, 
could really determine the outcome uh, of a lot of facts on defense. And I, I mean, I, I think Anthony Nelson, this is kind of his game, Parker Hesse. Uh, those guys need to start converging a little bit more on the quarterback. You know, they had a nice game the other day. They didn't really need to. But, you know, for all, that many dropbacks without any, you know, a lot of uh, hurries or certainly sacks, you know, only two, that, that's something that they got to improve on next uh, this week. Now, as you mentioned, you know, Hornibrook is he's young. He's been on the road. Road, but this is different. This is hostile in a different way. You know, he's faced the Michigan schools on the road, and they've got passionate fan bases. This one skews a little harder. This one's a rivalry game, and fans are a little bit uh, more amped for rivalry games than they are for regular, you know, Big Ten games. So uh, he's, you know, he's going to hear it's going to be loud. And Iowa's X factor is it does have a, you know, fairly veteran secondary. I mean, I don't know if he's going to challenge. Uh, and, and here's one other fact that's going to be interesting to see play out. With a left-handed quarterback, he usually looks left first. That's at Desmond King. And uh, with his motion, if he swings it to the right side, people can see where he's going. So I I think this has got some advantages for Iowa that maybe uh, maybe normally you wouldn't see. When he looks to pass, he's probably going to look at wide receiver Jazz Peavy. He had a terrific game against the Buckeyes. Four passes, 76 yards, one touchdown. But Peavy also rushed for 70 yards in that game. And then, of course, as always, Wisconsin has a has a really good tight end in Troy Fumagalli. Yeah, yeah. I mean, death taxes in Iowa and Wisconsin have a great tight ends. I mean, it's uh, they've they've combined for uh, I think. It's 14 tight ends since uh, Ferentz took over, you know, between both teams getting drafted, you know, just been or something like that. Yeah, I think since 2000 that they've combined for 14 draft picks uh, at tight end. So, yeah, they've got some players. Jazz Peavy had a tremendous game there against the Buckeyes. I mean, that's something that, uh, you know, they've really got to they've got to watch him in both regards. I mean, six rushes for 70 yards, you know, the jet sweep. And again, I think we look back and we remember what happened up against uh, Minnesota a couple years ago when, um, you know, they jet sweeped him to death. It was K.J. Uh, May, you know, 10 carries for like 70 yards, and, and it was just right around the end. And, and so I, I think that's what some, that Wisconsin's going to maybe try to exploit with him, how Iowa's guys stay at home, shed their blocks, you know, and, and get off the ball is going to be really essential for that. And then, you know, yeah, he's an, ex, he's an explosive player, but, you know, that, that's why I think in this situation, there every team is trying to look in great Maben's direction. But when you have a right-handed quarterback, you're naturally looking to your right, which would be where Maben is. Now it's your left-handed guy. He's going to have to turn just slightly and move his, and his arm's going to move slightly so it'll allow Maben to break on the ball a little bit better. So um, I, I think Iowa might have a little bit better advantage at this than normal. Des King got his first pick finally of the season last week at Purdue, and it was a pick six. He had a 41-yard touchdown return out of that. That's his 12th career interception his third pick six you run out of superlatives when you talk about him yeah obviously i mean pro football focused came out with uh best players right now and he's fourth in the country and you know he's had one interception but he's just been an amazing defender all the way he gave up one big play you know like a 28 yarder the other day and that was kind of a, a, a shock but you know one stat that they came up with with desmond king is that in the last three years he's he's missed six tackles out of 
167 attempts. I mean, that just shows you what a sure tackler he is, a violent tackler, you know, something you don't see out of corners very often, and, uh, and you know, a real good bo- guy with ball skills. So, uh, you know, even though the teams are going to have to try to test him, they just can't go be one-sided, but he is um, he's playing at a level that we haven't seen in Iowa City at that position. I mean, uh, you know, I think between him and uh, Bob Sanders, I mean, they're one-two in whatever order you pick as far as best Iowa defensive backs. And I know most a lot of Iowa fan, older Iowa fans are really are heavy with Bob Sanders, but you can't dismiss the way Desmond King's played. He's played at a level that very few people reach. Speaking of Desmond King, let's look at the special teams matchup Saturday. King is now averaging 28.5 yards per kickoff return, nearly 20 yards per punt return. That kind of play against a Wisconsin team that comes in first in the nation in the FBS in kickoff coverage, they're allowing just 14.7 yards per kickoff return. So there's a head-to-head that could play a crucial, uh, could be a crucial factor in Saturday's game. Yeah, how many times are they going to start at the 25 with, uh, with touchbacks? I think that's going to be a, a factor. But then again, how many kickoffs are there going to be? I mean, last year there weren't very many. You know, there were, what, three for each team, two well, scores apiece. piece. two. Yeah, there's going to be, <laughs> yeah, at least uh, one for each team. But uh, so last year there was a total of six. Uh, so, no, I, you know, I, I think, it, you know, he, he's got, the, he's going to break one one of these days. I just feel confident in saying that. Whether it's this week, next week, Illinois, or whatever bowl game it's going to be, he's going to break one at some point in one of the two phases of uh, the special teams. But, uh, you know, they, they have good coverage, no doubt about it. It's going to be up to Iowa to make sure to block most of them and, and uh, allow him to make a couple of good returns. You mentioned touchbacks. Ron Caluzzi continues to lead the Big Ten. 78% of his kickoffs have been touchbacks. But number two, and albeit a distant number, Number two is Wisconsin's kickoff specialist, P.J. Rosowski. 63% of his kickoffs have been touchbacks, 20 out of 32. Like you said, there may not be a lot of uh, kickoffs or kickoff returns. Place kicking is an interesting position for both teams. Uh, Keith Duncan, a true freshman for Iowa, is 100% so far, both on PATs and the few field goals he's kicked. But Wisconsin had to have a new place kicker step in, Andrew Endicott, when uh, Rafael Gaglione, the uh, incumbent, but in that position, had a severe injury and has been out for the season. And he's uh, four for four now in field goals and was three for three against Ohio State. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it, these games are so strange. You just wonder, okay, you know, when's it going to come down to a, a field goal to win? I mean, last year a field goal was really important. Um, you know, and Iowa missed a close one. I mean, you know, really, Iowa's kicking game has, has been an upgrade over last year. I know everybody saw Marshall Kane's 57-yarder, but he missed six extra points. So this is kind of, you know, in the and a couple of really close field goals. So I think this is something that Keith Duncan has really brought to this team, which is consistency in short range. And you need to make those bunnies, you know, per se. They're like layups. Make them. And, uh, you know, and Ron Caluzzi has really become another dimension where he's equaled what uh, Marshall Kane did last year, you know, in kickoff. So um, I think special teams are pretty much, you know, short up. You know, now, again, with Gaglianoni um, out, you know, that's forced some pressure on, on uh, you know, Endicott. I mean, he's a veteran. He's played. You know, he's kicked off mainly, you know, but now he's being a place kicker and he's four for four. But still, you know, that's and he's and he's kicked some from distance, too. I mean, in the 40s and stuff. But, you know, he's missed an extra point. And, and uh, so it'll be interesting to see. I mean, the, the guy who really hasn't done it very much in Endicott versus, you know, a guy who doesn't have a whole lot of experience in Duncan. I mean, it could come down to a, a late game field goal. And, and I don't think either one of them are sure bets. It's not like 
like uh, Mike Meyer out there, no doubt about it. One last point of comparison, turnovers. Points off of turnovers, Iowa scored 49 on the year. They are sitting at plus six, which is third in the Big Ten. Wisconsin, on the other hand, they have 30 points off of turnovers, but they are at zero. They've lost 11, they've gained 11. And we saw last year how one turnover decided that game. Yeah, I mean, it's... <laughs> it is pretty uh, pretty astounding there. I mean, but, you know, again, th- this is one of those things where the stats say one thing and then you look at the schedules and they say something else. I think uh, if I recall, Iowa scored three touchdowns off Miami of Ohio turnovers in the first game of the season. And then, then you look and say, OK, who's Wisconsin played? And, well, uh, you know, LSU, Michigan, Ohio State, well, OK, you know, they played some better teams. They're not going to score a lot of points off turnovers because they're not going to get as many. So what do we take with it? Well, Iowa's done a nice job of scoring off of them, but I don't know if that one's really going to matter a whole lot on Saturday. They, they're just, uh, you know, they've played two different schedules, and, and uh, Wisconsin can finally kind of see the light out of the tunnel, <laughs> whereas Iowa is kind of starting to enter the tunnel. One other factor that could be very significant is Iowa's, surprisingly, for a Kurt Ferentz coach team, continuing to have penalty issues. They had 12 flags against Purdue. On the other hand, Wisconsin's one of the least penalized teams in the nation. Yeah, and that's been baffling. You know, there's been a lot of baffling moments for Iowa this year. I mean, the you know, early on, the inability to stop the run, the, the lack of cohesion in the passing game, you know, running the ball was, has been mixed up, and then you throw in the penalties, and, and uh, you know, that's just so uncharacteristic. Iowa traditionally takes care of the ball and doesn't doesn't have a lot of penalties. So uh, some of them were really strange the other day, and, and other ones, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, there was, what, another uh, chop block on the goal line, uh, which was really strange. But so, you know, I, I think that's one where I'm sure they're going to work on it. I doubt it. It recurs very much more this season. Before we go to your prediction, quick glance at the Big Ten. Last week, you saw Maryland defeated by Minnesota, which I think surprised some people. Nebraska struggled to hang on and win at Indiana. Northwestern just beat the heck out of Michigan State. Then, of course, you had the Ohio State-Wisconsin game go into overtime. This week, you clearly, the Wisconsin-Iowa game, that's an elimination game in terms of the Big Ten West title hunt. Whoever loses that, especially if it's Iowa, is going to be really in the hole. You have an interesting game, Indiana at Northwestern, and then uh, be interesting also to see Ohio State at Penn State. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of a separation type of of, of uh, weekend, I would say, for a couple of teams. I mean, you know, number one, you know, you, know, you look at, you know, Iowa-Wisconsin, obviously the one we're covering, and it's a, it's a big rivalry game, the 90th edition of this rivalry, and, and I think it's, uh, you know, when you when you view it, you know, the loser's out. I, I, I don't see any way not. I mean, three losses is probably too many for uh, for Wisconsin to overcome. And if, and if Iowa only has one, well, you know, I don't see Iowa losing two more if they win this week. And then likewise, Nebraska's sitting at 3-0. They're going to beat Purdue pretty badly, I imagine. And, and so, you know, you're, then you're praying for, you know, three losses in their final five games just to get back into it. So I don't, I don't see the math adding up for, for Wisconsin. Likewise with Iowa, mathematically, they're still alive, but, but you also got Michigan on the horizon. And I don't, there's nothing I've seen of Iowa that suggests to me that they can beat Michigan. Maybe that changes after this week. I don't know, but uh, Michigan's pretty good. So I would, I wouldn't bet a lot on an Iowa victory there. So, I mean, I, I think this is a de facto elimination. As you mentioned, Penn State's in kind of the same situation. They're, you know, they're two and one. Their one loss is to Michigan, but, you know, this is their chance. They're at home. It's a whiteout. It's ABC game. It's all that they want for, for a team that's much better than they are, but if they could pull off the upset, and they almost did a few years ago, 
then they're still in contention in the East. And I liked your description there of Indiana Northwestern. I mean, these are two teams that you just don't really think that much about. And then all of a sudden you go, hey, they're both three and three. They both have played, you know, both beat Michigan State. Uh, both have played well at times this year. And and so I think they've both, uh, you know, when it comes to bowl games, this is kind of a, a bigger game for those guys. Uh, so, you know, then then there's, you know, you look at Minnesota, they're playing Rutgers. That should be, a, you know, a massacre. And <laughs> it's same thing with Purdue and, and Nebraska. But so, um, you know, but I think for me, maybe I'm provincial. I think Iowa-Wisconsin is the biggest game of the week. And uh, it's really important to the West Division race and then the overall Big Ten. All right. Time now for your prediction. Before I ask about the regular game, do you have, uh, have you given much thought to who's going to come out the winner in the Rusty Toolbox contest? Man, Iowa's got to pull that one out one of these years, right? I don't think they've seen it for like seven or eight years. So uh, I, I'm going to go with the Iowa managers. I think they are ready to reclaim every trophy Friday. You know, that's the one that seems to keep evading them. But, uh, oh my gosh, to this game here, I can see it going so many different ways. I think Wisconsin's got an edge in personnel. Iowa's at home. The visitors won the last five, but, you know, eventually that streak's got to break right too. You know, so um, I... I'm going to go with Wisconsin in a really close, hard-fought game like they always are. It would not surprise me with an outcome either way. I think Wisconsin pulls it out, probably with a late field goal, 16-13. But if you were to tell me no, you could probably persuade me the other direction. But I'll just I'll just skew a little bit more towards the Badgers in this one. Well, we got Peter, and they got guys named Blazer and Blazer and Taser and all kinds of Asians. Beathard takes the knee, and Iowa sets a new school record with its ninth consecutive road win. Hawkeyes improve to 5-2 and two on the season, and they'll gear up for what could be a top 10, maybe a top 5 Wisconsin team next weekend. Just a reminder, you can participate in our shows by offering your own comments and opinions on the Hawkeyes. The toll-free hotline is available 24 hours a day. Call 866-74-HAWKS and make your voice heard. Visit HawkeyesMike.com, go to the News and Events section, and check the links for up-to-date information on Iowa games, TV channels, team schedules, and more. You can subscribe to all Hawkeyes Mike podcasts through iTunes. And you can follow Hawkeyes Mike on Twitter, Tumblr, Medium, and Facebook. Our thanks again to ESPN2 for the game highlights this week, and thanks as always to Scott Docterman. We hope you've enjoyed this program. All Hawkeyes Mike podcasts are available and can be subscribed to on iTunes, Overcast, and other podcasting apps. HawkeyesMike.com, podcasting Iowa athletics for 10 seasons. It's all Hawkeyes, all the time, on HawkeyesMike.com. One passion, many voices. Nice work, everyone. Sharp broadcast. Really good. Everyone on the floor as well. Really a lot of hustle. I liked it. This has been a presentation of Hawkeye's Mike, LLC.